The History of College Football is a podcast dedicated to preserving the college football gridiron memories from years gone by. Please feel free to visit our website at historyofcollegefootball.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Mr. Clint Poppy. Now, for our listeners, last fall, Clint Pop had me on weekly as a guest on his incredible radio show, This Week in College Football, and we plan to resume this show next fall. I'm thrilled to have you on as a guest on my podcast. Again, for our listeners, Clint Poppy is a pastor at the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. His congregation has its own radio station, KNNALP 95.7, The Cross. He's the host of several programs and handles much of the sports programming. You can follow him on Twitter at Clint K. Poppy. That's at C-L-I-N-T-K-P-O-P-P-E. Thank you for joining my podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jay. It's good to hear your voice once again. Uh, my friend, it's wonderful to hear your voice. You're the host of the radio station, KNNA 95.7 FM, The Cross. Tell us about your broadcast. Um, several years ago, we uh, decided to look into getting a license. There was one available. They're, they're really uh, hard to come by. But a uh, low-power FM license was available here in Lincoln, Nebraska. We put in for it, got it, did a little fundraising, put up a tower, and then we figured out that we better have some content to put on it. We are primarily a religious radio station. I would say about 80 to 85% of our programming is religious programming, but we have 15 to 20% community programming. And uh, this last year, we had our uh, first live sporting events with Lincoln Lutheran High School, uh, both volleyball and basketball. We've got uh, several sports programs that we air, including your podcast, History of College Football. That's really how we got to know each other. And uh, then we uh, collaborated on uh, this week in the History of College Football last year and had a lot of fun. Uh, we got a lot of really, really great feedback from that program. And um, we, I'm excited that we're going to continue it, maybe even look for some new projects in the future. I urge all of you listening to listen to, tune in to KNNA 95.7 FM, The Cross. Let's discuss a little Nebraska football history. You and I have known each other for quite a while, so, so we'll just jump right into it. And we'll start before our lifetime, pre-1960. Nebraska's first year of football was 1890. Talk to me about the first 70 years of Nebraska history. Yeah, I told you when uh, you told me that you wanted to talk about the uh, pre uh, Bob Devaney era at Nebraska. Um, 
I told you that I probably had 40 to 100 hours worth of material and I'd have to tear <laughs> it down. So um, if, if, I, if I bog you down too much, Jay, you just have to correct me or uh, straighten me out. Nebraska has a uh, very, very rich history with football. And like you said, the first year uh, was 1890. And uh, that depends on what, um, what source you look at. Nebraska's first football game was on Thanksgiving Day, 1890. They played uh, the Omaha YMCA at Omaha and won 10 to nothing. And later that year, in February, of all things, in February, they played a game against Doan College, which uh, by some accounts is the first intercollegiate football game in the history of Nebraska football. It's counted as the 1890 season, but it uh, really happened in uh, February of 1891. Football was big in the East in the 1890s, and, and you know, uh, it was 14 years before Nebraska's first game when uh, Rutgers and Princeton played. But uh, the uh, craze of college football was really sweeping the nation. And year by year by year, more and more schools were jumping into the college football arena. And there was a huge push in Nebraska starting in 1890 or 1883, excuse me, uh, in the student newspaper that uh, if Nebraska wanted to be the Harvard on the prairie as they build themselves, that they needed a football team. And so they looked and lobbied and campaigned. And finally, they were able to get a professor from Harvard to come to Nebraska um, to teach agriculture. And uh, Dr. Langdon Frothingham was the uh, first coach. And he only coached one year. And uh, then he went back, back East in uh, 1891, the uh, Huskers played without a coach and uh, kind of a crazy event from 1891 is Iowa wanted to play Nebraska, but Nebraska didn't have a coach and didn't think they could field a team. So Iowa lent Nebraska, their coach, and he came to Lincoln and tutored the Huskers uh, guy's name was T.U. Lyman and um, then proceeded to uh, play Nebraska and Iowa won 22 to nothing. So I'm not sure how much that uh, tutoring paid off. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was at this time and Nebraska was not the Cornhuskers yet. Um, they went by various names. They were the uh, Rattlesnake Boys. They were the Antelopes. They were the Bug Eaters, my favorite name. <laughs> and uh, by some newspaper accounts, they were the Golden Knights. Uh, but at this time in 1891, they went together with uh, Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri, and they formed the Western Collegiate Football Association. And uh, it was short-lived uh, because in 1892, Missouri boycotted a game that uh, Nebraska had an African-American football player, gentleman by the name of George Flippin. And uh, Missouri would not take the field with um, a black football player on Nebraska's team. That was in 1892. And George Flippin uh, went on to Chicago, became a medical doctor, came back to Nebraska, and uh, just was a local hero because he was one of the first early great football stars. 
in uh, 1900, the uh, student newspaper and uh, the uh, Lincoln newspaper, both at the same time, dubbed the football team the Cornhuskers. And uh, the uh, sports writer by the name of uh, Cy Sherman is uh, credited with uh, that particular name, although it did show up in the student newspaper several months before he coined it. Um, Jay, I'm not sure if, uh, if you're aware of this, but uh, you know there have been some very, very famous coaches that were a part of Nebraska football before Bob Devaney arrived on the scene. And I know you are a big Fielding Yost fan. Did you know that Fielding Yost coached the Cornhuskers? I did. Was it one season? In my one season. Memory, correct. Was it one season? Or? Uh, it was eighteen ninety eight, mm. and um, I don't know if this was his name uh, nickname anywhere else, but it's Fielding H. Uh, Yost, and the folks in Nebraska dubbed him Fielding. Hurry up. Yost because of the style of play that they had and um, everybody was excited when Fielding Yost came because he brought the uh, what was called at the time the Princeton style of football to Nebraska he uh, he went seven and four people wanted to keep him but uh, the University of Kansas offered him more money and he left and went from Nebraska to Kansas. And I think he had a couple of other stops before he um, ended up in Michigan and had his uh, great, great years there. Uh, after, uh, after Fielding Yost came a gentleman by the name of W.C. Bummy Booth, and he also came from Princeton. Um, I, I don't think it's possible to overestimate the um, prominence of Ivy League and East Coast football at the time. That's where the center of the college football world was on the East Coast. And if you wanted to be somebody, you had to bring either East Coast players or East Coast coaches to come. Um, Nebraska under uh, Bummy Booth went 7-1-1 in 1900, 9-2 in 1901, 10 and 0 in 1902, 11 and 0 in 1903, 8 and 3 in 1904, 9 and 2 in 1905, and uh, Nebraska was quickly becoming a major power on the scene of college football. The biggest knock on uh, Bummy Booth was his schedule. Um, he would schedule. Uh, not not only uh, large intercollegiate activity and schools, but he would also schedule lots of the local smaller schools and uh, even um, Lincoln High School. And there's some debate on whether those games were were uh, legitimate games or exhibition games. Uh, there's also some talk that uh, Booth had a uh, kind of a farm program going at Lincoln High, and that's why he wanted to schedule them all the time. Uh, he left and he went back to Princeton and uh, practiced law for the rest of his life. In um, 1911, one of the uh, one of the most famous Husker football coaches came, and his name was Ewald Steam. S-T-I-E-H-M. And everybody called him Jumbo, Jumbo Steam. And uh, Jumbo Steam was a little man. 
and nobody could figure out how he got the nickname Jumbo, but it was because he had such big feet. Uh, Jumbo Steam uh, coached from 1911 to 1915, and he had an amazing 35-2-3 and record during that time. And um, uh, he played football for Wisconsin, and uh, then he uh, was a uh, big wig in the uh, just about over Missouri Valley Conference, and uh, perhaps the most famous player that played under uh, Jumbo Steam is a uh, gentleman that, by some accounts, is the greatest athlete in the history of Nebraska. A gentleman by the name of Berlin Guy Chamberlain. And uh, Berlin Guy Chamberlain uh, was an amazing college football player. He was an amazing professional football player. He was an amazing NFL coach. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. He's in the NFL Hall of Fame and uh, certainly goes down as one of the uh, greats in Nebraska football history. He was the star in 1915 when Nebraska beat Notre Dame 20 to 19. And that really, that game really put Nebraska on the map. Uh, The 1915 team was undefeated and Nebraska would not go undefeated again until 50 years later, 1965, uh, undefeated in the regular season. And so um, that was um, uh, a real a real hallmark. Uh, one other, one other note during this time was in 1913, uh, Nebraska beat Minnesota seven to nothing. And, uh, the star fullback for Minnesota in 1913 is a familiar name, Clark Sean Shaughnessy, uh, who, uh, went on to Stanford fame. I see you nodding your head, Jay. And, um, Uh, when uh, Clark Shaughnessy got hurt in the game, he was uh, replaced by his backup, uh, a little known gentleman by the name of Bernie Bierman. And uh, so um, that, uh, that little tidbit of history there from uh, 1913, I thought you would, uh, you would find, you would find fun and uh, maybe the hearers might be interested in, in, um, in these days, um, there was a growing rivalry between Nebraska and Notre Dame. And uh, you, you can Google it, and uh, you know, there's, there's many, many articles and accounts that have been written. But um, uh, in the 1920s, um, Nebraska was a major football power and uh, rivaled only by the Pittsburgh's armies and Minnesota's of the world, uh, maybe Syracuse as well. And um, Nebraska had this ongoing feud with uh, Notre Dame. And the last time Nebraska played Notre Dame in those early years, there was a, uh, there was a riot um, after the game, I'm not sure how big of a riot it was, but according to newspaper accounts, it was a anti-Roman Catholic riot and, uh, they were, um, uh, burning crosses in the street. They were, uh, fans were, uh, tipping the, uh, rail cars that, uh, Notre Dame had traveled into Nebraska and, uh, Notre Dame, um, 
went back. Newt Rockney vowed that he would never play Nebraska again. And uh, he replaced Nebraska with USC. And that rivalry between Notre Dame and USC uh, continues to this day. One of the reasons why I, I say I'm not really sure how big this riot was and how big of a deal that was is because uh, in 1928, after the season, Nebraska made a major play to woo Newt Rockney to come and coach Nebraska. And uh, there were rumors floating around that uh, Rockney was unhappy for various reasons. And so they contacted him. They met with him. Uh, he didn't come to Nebraska, but instead he suggested a name of someone who thought would be a perfect fit at Nebraska. And uh, that gentleman was uh, Dana Xenophon Bible, DX Bible, uh, one of the most famous coaches in the history of college football. He was coaching at Texas A&M and uh, by some accounts uh, won one or two national championships there. He did come to Nebraska, and uh, after he left Nebraska, he went to Texas in Austin, um, and uh, I don't think he regretted leaving Nebraska, but he was very, very open in public that uh, his heart was still in Nebraska, that he missed Nebraska, and he was a uh, uh, longtime um, fan and would occasionally show up in Lincoln to cheer on his uh, Huskers. He was, uh, he was called the Little Colonel, and uh, un he had the unfortunate um, happenstance here at Nebraska to have some great Nebraska football teams, but unfortunately those great football teams played at the same time as the great uh, Jack Sutherland teams from Pittsburgh and the great Bernie Bierman gay teams from Minnesota. Uh, in uh, 1933, uh, he coached at Nebraska from 29 to 36. In 1933, Nebraska had uh, the number two ranking in the nation behind uh, Michigan, and uh, they were upset by Pittsburgh six to nothing. In uh, 1935, they uh, had a, a dominant victory 28 to 7 over the University of Chicago and uh, held uh, Jay Burwanger there's another famous name held Jay Burwanger to uh, negative yards rushing in the game uh, and so um, in 1936 the uh, the N Nebraska loss to Minnesota was uh, especially heartbreaking because it came nearly on the last play of the game. Uh, Bud Wilkinson, there's another name dropper for you. Bud Wilkinson fielded a punt. He was hemmed in. He lateraled the pitch to Andy Urum or Urum. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. And uh, he ran for a touchdown and Minnesota won seven to nothing. Uh, which would have been a, um, a major, major undertaking and a major, major um, upset victory for Nebraska. Um, Nebraska at this time, uh, one thing about Bible, he uh, 
He did not schedule Patsy's. He played the conference schedule, of course, but Nebraska played uh, big schools, power schools from the East every year. And with the exception of Pittsburgh, uh, held their own very, very well. Uh, they played Syracuse on a, a nearly annual basis. They played New York University, uh, which was a power, power school back then on a, a regular basis. And uh, they also um, were not afraid to play some of the up and coming powers in football as well. And it was during this time that Nebraska started a, a tradition of playing their last game of the year against Oregon State. And uh, Oregon State was, uh, you know, you wouldn't know it now, but uh, Oregon State was a major, major football power uh, before World War Two uh, broke out. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of other details I could go into, Jay, but uh, I don't want to bore people as well. Um, it was um, it was during this time when um, uh, with the whole uh, series with Newt Rockney before the uh, Notre Dame series ended uh, sadly and tragically. Um, before that, that uh, Nebraska uh, put on the field what some people would call, um, you know, I know I mentioned this about Guy Chamberlain before, but uh, some people would say the uh, greatest football player in the history of Nebraska football, a gentleman by the name of Ed Weir. Ed Weir, 1923 to 1925, I have the dates right, and a legendary coach. Correct. Newt Rockney said Weir was the greatest tackle he ever saw. Talk to me about Ed Weir's legacy in Nebraska football. Um, yeah, Ed, Ed Weir's legacy is uh, even bigger than uh, Nebraska football. Um, Ed Weir's from a small town near the Kansas border, Superior, Nebraska. He, um, he was not your typical triple threat player because um, he played in the line. He was a lineman. Uh, both offensively and defensively. He punted, he kicked, and he would occasionally run back punts and kickoffs and occasionally, occasionally would uh, be put in the backfield when uh, the team needed a spark. Uh, he played three years for Nebraska, during which there were two coaches and three different offenses. He, um, he almost single-handedly stopped the four horsemen and their vaunted attack. The, uh, the four horsemen lost two games in their collegiate career at Notre Dame. They got beat by Nebraska and by Nebraska. And so it is, um, it is no surprise that uh, Newt Rockney would uh, say that the amazing, the amazing thing is that uh, Newt Rockney made that comment about uh, how great Ed Weir was uh, in 1925 after Ed Weir's last game. And um, it was uh, um, a uh, Nebraska uh, pounding of Notre Dame in, uh, in 1924, uh, 1925. So um, the uh, uh, Rockney quote 
is sometimes attributed to a year earlier. And the year earlier, Notre Dame pounded Nebraska 34 to six. And Rockney said after that game that if Weir hadn't played, they could have scored a hundred. That's how dominant he was. Um, Pop Warner called Ed Weir the greatest tackle who ever lived. And, um, you know, Nebraska beat the four horsemen in 1922, 14 to six in 1923, uh, 14 to seven, and then got pounded in, um, 1924. One of, one of the things about Ed Weir was, um, Nebraska played Illinois in 1925, Red Grange's junior year. And, uh, Grange was held to negative 40 yards rushing. Most of that were tackles for loss by Ed Weir. And uh, near the end of the game, Ed Weir intercepted a pass uh, from Red Grange and uh, had a pick six, ran it back for a touchdown. Uh, he played uh, He played in the NFL, had a stellar career there for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Uh, they were the uh, 1926 NFL champions. He uh, then came back to Nebraska and he was the freshman football coach at Nebraska. He was the assistant track coach at Nebraska. In 1939, he became the head track coach at Nebraska and was the head track coach at Nebraska for 15 years. He retired in 1960 and uh, he's in the College Football Hall of Fame, of course. And to this day, the track complex at the University of Nebraska is named the Ed Weir Track Complex. Um, uh, a great name. And because, um, you know, he was still alive into the 1960s, there are, there are still many people alive who uh, knew and know the name Ed Weir very well. Clint, your wealth of knowledge. I love the way, with the pride in your voice, that you laid out the timeline for Nebraska. Phenomenal stuff. Now, in 1962, Nebraska hires a coach, Bob Devaney, who I understand you met several times. He coached from 1962 to 1972, winning 83% of his games and brought home to Nebraska two national championships. You were living in Nebraska during those times. Talk to me about his legacy at Nebraska. Um, Jay, it, uh, it is hard to put into words what Bob Devaney meant to Nebraska football. Um, and, and not only to Nebraska football, but really the entire state of Nebraska, the, um, the state was, um, always looking for something, you know, um, you know, nobody from Nebraska, has ever been elected president. Well, George uh, Gerald Ford was president, but he wasn't elected. Um, Nebraska's always had this kind of a chip on its shoulder. You know, we're in the Midwest. Uh, we're not really known for anything except corn and cattle and uh, maybe a bit of an inferiority complex in that way. And the state has always dreamed of having a national football power that would really put Nebraska on the map and uh, 
give Nebraska something to cheer about. And there were miserable, miserable seasons at Nebraska uh, post um, World War II. You know, in 1940, Nebraska went to the Rose Bowl. And uh, that's, a, that's a whole podcast in and of itself, Jay, that 1940 season. But um, after World War II, uh, Nebraska did not have a, an ROTC program, so did not have the athletes here. Uh, Nebraska was uh, not giving uh, athletic scholarships. And so it was very, very difficult for Nebraska to recruit and compete. And so in the 1950s, Nebraska football was um, very, very forgettable. Um, rarely a winning season, um, you know, maybe an upset here and there, but Nebraska was really, really pining for something. And so after the 1961 season, the uh, uh, athletic director and uh, many of the boosters were, were really hoping to, to make a big splash, to make a major hire. They uh, had heard rumblings that Duffy Doherty at Michigan State was unhappy. And they tried very, very hard to woo Duffy Doherty away from Michigan State and get him to come to Nebraska. Well, Duffy Doherty um, assured them that he was quite happy in East Lansing. But he said, I've got a name for you. Very, very reminiscent of Newt Rockney uh, suggesting DX Bible. Um, Duffy Doherty said, uh, there is a man uh, used to coach for me. He's doing great things at the University of Wyoming. And he would be a perfect fit, both football-wise and culture-wise, for Nebraska. And so uh, Bob Devaney was uh, brought in uh, under cover of darkness and uh, was interviewed. Uh, the people in Wyoming were not happy. Um, many people don't realize that in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, the University of Wyoming Cowboys were uh, pretty much a perennial top 10 team. Uh, Wyoming was on the forefront of allowing African Americans to play football. And unfortunately, that, that ended up in a, a very, very tragic thing in Wyoming. There's another podcast for you, Jay. Sorry about that. Uh, but, um, but Bob Devaney came to Nebraska. And Bob Devaney was um, uh, an amazing speaker. I heard him speak many, many times. Um, I always dreamed of playing football for Bob Devaney. Uh, my, uh, my brothers, my, one of my brothers said that I had a Bob Devaney complex. Uh, and he used to joke that uh, most people pray to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But my little brother pays, prays to Father, Son, and Bob Devaney. And uh, it, it you know, my, my uh, hero worship and devotion, it probably wasn't too far off. Um, I just, uh, I gobbled up everything I could with Nebraska football. This is the era when, when I am growing up and uh, Nebraska is uh, doing great things on the football field in uh, Nebraska's first year under Bob Devaney, 1962, they went nine and two and uh, won the Gotham Bowl over uh, George Myra and Miami of Florida. I think that's one of the games we talked about on our This Week in the History of College Football. 
um, amazing story with uh, with that game. Uh, it was quite a shootout in uh, New York City. But um, Nebraska, early in the season, traveled to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, Nebraska was a prohibitive underdog. And Nebraska, with the uh, same players that in 1961 went three, six, and one. Bob Devaney went into the big house in Michigan, second game of the year, and came out with a dominating, convincing 25 to 13 win. And uh, people around the nation thought it was a misprint when that score came out. Mm. And that really got people to take notice. Uh, Nebraska went nine and two that year under uh, Bob Devaney's first year, uh, got beat pretty soundly by uh, Oklahoma in the last, uh, last game of the year, uh, last regular season game of the year, and also lost to Missouri, which was kind of an on again, off again nemesis during those years. Uh, Bob Devaney then proceeded in 1963 to go 10 and one the only loss being an upset loss uh some people would say the most humiliating loss in the history of nebraska football i don't know that i would go that far but we got beat by air force that year that was uh the only stain on bob devaney's record in 1963 and beat auburn in the orange bowl in 1964 <laughs> nine and two in 1965 had the um, undefeated regular season. And, you know, there was a lot going on in 1965 in college football, especially that, uh, that famous uh, era Parsegan 10, 10 tie and uh, a lot of um, debate with regard to who should be number one. Well, it should have been Nebraska. Uh, Nebraska went undefeated during the, uh, during the regular season and was, um, upset in the orange bowl by that, uh, that goofy guy in the tweed hat, Alabama beat Nebraska 39 to 28 in a very, very shocking loss for Nebraska and a really shocking loss for the whole state of Nebraska. Bob Devaney then went on. He had, uh, he had two subpar seasons in 1967 and 1968, losing four games. And there were people that were calling, believe it or not, people that were calling for Bob Devaney's head said he couldn't win the big one. And so um, Bob Devaney uh, and his uh, assistants doubled down on the recruiting they went out and recruited two hotshot quarterbacks, uh, guys by the name of Van Bronson and Jerry Taggy. And in 1969, ne Nebraska again went nine and two, but you could tell they were a team on the rise. Um, they, uh, they lost only two games in 1969. They lost by 10 points to USC, Southern California, in Lincoln in a game that was much, much closer than the score. And they lost to uh, Terry McMillan. There's a name some people might remember. Terry McMillan and Missouri 
um, 17 to seven. I remember that game just like it was yesterday, listening on my transistor radio, um, a gray, cold fall day. And Nebraska just could not get anything going that day. They lost 17 to seven, two 10 point losses. They went on to uh, crush LSU in the Sun Bowl. And uh, that was the beginning then of the um, amazing run that Bob Devaney had. Um, national champions in 1970, national champions in 1971, um, not national champions in 72. Everybody prayed for a three-peat, but um, uh, still a great year and a uh, dominating, um, unbelievable victory over Notre Dame in the Orange Bowl. And uh, I believe to this day that is the worst loss Notre Dame has ever had in a bowl game was that uh, after the 1972 season would have been January 1st 1973 and Johnny Rogers was the star of the game as he had been the star for the previous three seasons Heisman Trophy winner uh, Bob Devaney experimented in that Orange Bowl game and um Johnny Rogers spent half of his time at wingback, which was his natural position, and half of the time at eyeback, and uh, no one could stop him. Uh, when Bob Devaney retired, uh, the whole state was in mourning. Uh, he went on to be athletic director and uh, did many, many wonderful things as athletic director, especially in the area of women's sports. Bob Devaney was a pioneer with regard to uh, how black athletes were recruited and treated. And Nebraska has a long, long history and heritage of um, being, uh, you know, one of the first and uh, um, consistent with regard to integration. And, you know, for some of the hearers, Jay, that may sound crazy, but, um, you know, we grew up in the 60s and uh, graduated from high school in the 70s and it was a different time it was a different era and uh, there were there were teams uh, not only in the south but especially in the south that refused to allow black athletes to play there were teams that would allow black athletes to play but they were not allowed to play in the specialty positions and heaven forbid that a quarterback a black quarterback play for the team and uh, these were these were different times and it really really took pioneers to uh, break down those barriers it took pioneers to shatter some of those myths and uh, bob devaney was one of those pioneers what a great tribute to a great coach, Glenn. Thank you. And on to another great coach, another legend. 1973, Nebraska hires coach Tom Osborne. He coached from 1973 to 1997, winning 84% of his games. He brought Nebraska back three national championships in a four-year span. Talk about his legacy at Nebraska. Oh, you know, there, there's uh, so much to say about uh, Tom Osborne, Dr. Tom Osborne. He has an earned PH. He has an earned PhD in um, um, psychology. And uh, I had the privilege uh, many times to, uh, to meet uh, Dr. Tom. Uh, his uh, granddaughter went to preschool here at our church. And uh, what a uh, what a gentleman 
um, a gentleman and a scholar. And quite frankly, uh, when Bob Devaney decided to retire and become full-time athletic director, he named his successor, uh, Tom Osborne, uh, is from Hastings, Nebraska. Some people might know Hastings because the drink Kool-Aid was invented in Hastings, Nebraska. Uh-huh. And uh, everybody in Nebraska drinks lots of Kool-Aid during the summer in anticipation of the upcoming year. But uh, Tom Os- Osborne was a star for Hastings College. He played three or four years in the NFL uh, for uh, Washington Redskins and the uh, San Francisco 49ers. And then he decided that uh, uh, while he was working on his PhD, that he would take up coaching. And uh, it's a really, really great thing for the coaching world that he did. Bob Devaney named Tom Osborne his successor. And I don't think anybody realized the part that Tom Osborne had played offensively in the success that Nebraska had had. And so uh, the whole state was in shock. Um, nobody really knew Tom Osborne. Uh, he was not your, um, banquet speaker, laugh a minute kind of a guy. In fact, just the opposite, um, a very, very, uh, milk toasty kind of a guy, very soft spoken kind of a guy. Um, he has freely admitted that, uh, the worst word he has ever used on the sidelines in college football was daggummit. And uh, he felt bad that he had said that on the sideline in front of the players. Uh, players loved him. Um, moms and dads loved him when he would come into the living rooms and uh, recruit. And Tom Osborne, um, while some would say that he had uh, a bit of a, a rocky start, Tom Osborne amazingly never won less than nine games in his entire 25-year tenure at Nebraska. And perhaps an even more important uh, statistic, Jay, is Tom Osborne only lost one game in 25 years to a team with a losing record. Mm -hmm. I forget the year, but that was Iowa State. Uh, So um, an amazing, an amazing man, both on and off the field. He is a devout Methodist. Um, when, um, when Tom Osborne retired and again, shocked the, uh, the whole state of Nebraska, people said, well, Tom Osborne could be governor if he wanted to be. Huh. Well, just to show you how politics work, Tom Osborne ran for governor. And uh, because he would not uh, play game with the uh, powers in the uh, party, uh, Tom Osborne was defeated in his uh, run for governor. But um, he was uh, he was too great a man to sit idle. And so he ran for Congress and he was a longtime congressman from the third uh, congressional district here in Nebraska and uh, did himself proud uh, as he represented the people here in Nebraska as well. You know, I suppose, uh, you know, when you talk about Tom Osborne, there was a time in the uh, 1980s when, um, uh, because he could only win nine games and he had the rap of um, not being able to win the big one. The big joke here at Nebraska is at the time is uh, with regard to Tom Osborne. Uh, this is terrible. Um, 
why does Tom Osborne eat cereal out of the box? Why? Because if you put it in a bowl, he would lose it. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the knock. That was the joke. And, uh, you know, this was uh, Tom Osborne versus Barry Switzer. Um, these were the, the years when Nebraska would go to the Orange Bowl year after year and uh, face some uh, really, really challenging teams with uh, Miami, the Florida talent and the Florida speed. Um, Nebraska uh, should have been national champions. The 1983 Nebraska Cornhuskers, I think, um, I think I could make a case for the fact that uh, the 1983 Nebraska Cornhuskers should be considered one of the uh, top football teams in the history of college football. And yet what they're remembered for is the uh, uh, 31 to 30 upset in the orange bowl by Howard Schnellenberger and Miami. Um, you know, if, if that game could have been um, a little bit longer or a little bit shorter um, the, the outcome would have been different, but it is what it is. And yet amazingly in that loss, uh, Tom Osborne endeared himself to the entire nation, especially the college football world. Uh, Nebraska was undefeated. Miami had a loss. Nebraska could have kicked the extra point on their uh, last minute touchdown to, um, get within one point they could have tied the game with the extra point and uh, could have backed into the national championship and uh, we know that there are other coaches that have backed into national championships and what history does to them but tom osborne elected to go for two uh, unfortunately uh, mike rogier was uh, injured earlier in the fourth quarter and this was a play that was supposed to be a pass to him it was uh, to his replacement jeff smith and uh, the, the ball was tipped by the Miami defender and uh, felt, fell uh, harmlessly to the ground. Miami won, Nebraska lost. But because Nebraska went for two and went for the win, um, it gained a measure of respect for Tom Osborne and Nebraska football that um, Nebraska probably hadn't had for a long, long time. Um, Tom Osborne was an innovator, uh, offensive innovator. He was um, not afraid to um, uh, throw out a trick play now again. I know uh, one of your favorites, Jay, is the fumble Ruski from that Orange Bowl game. Um, but uh, uh, Nebraska really came into its own in the uh, 1990s. In 1994, uh, Nebraska could have been uh, the national champions. Uh, they went undefeated. Everybody thought that uh, their schedule was light. They uh, went once again to, um, to the uh, uh, Orange Bowl. And this time it was uh, Florida State and Charlie Ward. And Nebraska dominated the game. They were 17 and a half point underdogs. They dominated the game. Uh, they went into a prevent defense at the uh, end of the fourth quarter, uh, which in my humble opinion, does nothing more than prevent you from actually winning the game. Um, Florida, <laughs> Florida State won late, uh, scored late. Nebraska had a chance. They uh, drove down the field and attempted a um, 40, 42 yard field goal to win the game. And uh, Nebraska went 
wide left um, wasn't wasn't even that close. And so um, that heartbreak, that heartbreak was felt throughout all of Nebraska. And the final score of that Orange Bowl game was on the scoreboard all throughout the offseason. That mm. final score of that Orange Bowl game was left up um, throughout the year in 1995. And the uh, theme that the players chose for 1995 was unfinished business. And boy, oh boy, did they finish business in 1995. Um, many people, um, including you and me, Jay, uh, many people point to the 1995 Nebraska Cornhusker football team as the greatest team in the history of college football. And I saw with my own eyes live in person, both the 1971 Cornhuskers that were dominant. Um, only close game was the game of the century uh, against Oklahoma, 35-31. I saw with my own eyes in person live the 1995 Cornhuskers. And uh, I didn't think I would ever see a team that was better than the 71 Huskers and 95 was better. Um, they were never challenged throughout the entire year. Their closest game, uh, Nebraska played terribly and still won over Washington State by 14 points. That was the closest game of the year. They dominated everyone that they played on both sides of the ball. And, um, uh, you know, for, for those that didn't get a chance to see those Huskers play, I would just say go to YouTube. Uh, many of those games and highlights are out there, and uh, it was it was a uh, sight to behold. wasn't without controversy. Uh, you know, this was the uh, Lawrence Phillips season, and uh, Lawrence Phillips, after a dominating performance in a victory over uh, Lou Saban and Michigan State, uh, Lawrence Phillips came back home. Uh, don't know need to go into the gory details. Uh, got in trouble with the law and was uh, suspended for uh, much of the season. And everybody thought, well, you know, Nebraska is not the same team without Lawrence Phillips. Well, th they were. Uh, Lawrence Phillips was a unique talent, but uh, Nebraska was loaded with unique talent. And um, the decision had to come down because the suspension was lifted, whether uh, Lawrence Phillips would play in the, uh, in the Fiesta Bowl against Florida that year. And uh, Tom Osborne, um, true to his character, had promised Lawrence Phillips that if he had done certain things, that he would be allowed back on the team. The team voted. Lawrence Phillips was back on. He caught a lot of grief and a lot of criticism in the press, but uh, he followed his heart and did what was right in his mind. Uh, Nebraska did not need Lawrence Phillips to win that game. And um, uh, the rest of the story on Lawrence Phillips was um, tragic and, uh, you know, uh, wish things had turned out different for him because he was a great athlete on the field. Uh, 1996 was a difficult year for Nebraska. Everybody thought that, uh, you know, um, being, uh, being so close, got to fix this right. 93 was the year 
that Nebraska almost won in the um, in the Orange Bowl against Florida State. 94, Nebraska won its first national championship with the two fullback dives uh, late in the game against Miami. 95 was the uh, dominant team. So almost three, two national championships in a row. Everybody was looking and hoping for a three-peat in 1996. Um Nebraska native son, Scott Frost from Wood River, Nebraska, had gone out to, um, to play for uh, Walsh at Stanford and had transferred back to Nebraska. And so this was going to be uh, Scott Frost's first year, 1996. Uh, things did not go well. It was uh, a debacle in uh, Tempe, Arizona. Uh, three safeties in the game and number one, Nebraska was upset by Arizona state. Couldn't quite get its footing after that uh, heartbreaking loss. And then in uh, 1997 came back and uh, in Tom Osborne's last year, won uh, his third national championship in four years um, was uh, amazing, amazing victory. And uh, the whole the whole country was uh, kind of pulling for Tom Osborne at that time. Um, if you if you look it up, it's a shared national championship with Michigan. Uh, no doubt in my mind that uh, Nebraska would have won that game if it could have been played. But uh, that was kind of the fun part of college football back in the day. Uh, you had mythical national championships, and you could carry on that football version of baseball's hot stove league for years and years and years to come. Uh, Tom Osborne still lives here in Lincoln. Uh, see him around town occasionally. Um, he is a, uh, a great man and um, has meant a lot, not only to Nebraska football, but to the entire state. Incredible legacy to a legend. Thank you so much, Clint. And I got to tell you, I don't have a Nebraska bias, but when I was coming up with my podcast for the top 10 teams of all time. I went back to my own lifetime. <clears throat> and I had 1901 Michigan, obviously, but I, I'm old, but I'm not that old. I never saw them play. And there are three teams that I never thought could be beaten. The 72 Trojans, the 71 Cornhuskers, and the 95 Cornhuskers. And every time I wrote that podcast, I rewrote it three times, had three different teams as number one. I ended up with three being USC, two being the 71 Cornhuskers, and one being the 95. Let's move to the current and, time. And Jay, that's one of your earlier podcasts. So if your listeners haven't heard that, uh, I want to say it's around number nine or 10, something like that. Uh, and uh, you know, for your, for your listeners, if you haven't heard that, uh, the wealth of information on those podcasts is amazing. So um, after, after I heard those, Jay, you had me hooked. <laughs> Thank you so much. I tell you, it's such a hard question. Let's move to current times. How would you encapsulate the last 25 years of Nebraska football? Boy, now, now you're, now you're uh, asking the tough questions. Um, you know, the last, the last 25 years have had their ups and downs. Um, the last 20 years have been really tough. You know, in, in uh, 2001, Nebraska, uh, you know, at least on paper, played for the national championship in the Rose Bowl against Miami. Uh, I just happened to be fortunate enough to 
be able to be at that game in person uh, in Pasadena and, uh, you know, to experience a Rose Bowl was um, um, amazing in and of itself. Uh, Nebraska had no business being on the same field with Miami. Um, Miami dominated the game. And uh, if it had not been for the kind heart of Miami's coach, Larry Corker, uh, they probably could have scored 50, 60, 80 points in that game. They really, really called off the dogs in the second half. And, that was a legendary uh, Miami team. And it was. And I don't think the people in Nebraska appreciated uh, just how kind he was to Nebraska because he didn't want to humiliate them. And, uh, you know, I wish Larry Corker would have had more success in Miami for that reason alone. Um, you know, after, after Tom Osborne left, he um, followed Bob Devaney's example and named his successor. Um, longtime Nebraska assistant, Frank Solich. Uh, Frank Solich had been a star football player for Nebraska. Uh, there's an episode, I believe, of Sports Illustrated where he's on the cover. Um, just a little bitty guy, but, uh, he was a dynamic fullback during his playing days. He was a, a great high school coach here in Nebraska, here in Lincoln. Uh, and, uh, then he was assistant coach at Nebraska for many years. And, uh, everybody thought that, um, you know, Frank needed a shot and, uh, Tom Osborne, uh, gave it to him and Frank Solich's teams were not bad. Um, they were, they were competitive, uh, and for many years, he kept that nine win streak alive, uh, in my, in my humble opinion, um, I think where, where, uh, where Frank Solich, uh, fell short was in recruiting and, uh, he did not get the number of, uh, star recruits to consider Lincoln and, uh, the team's started to tail off and the people in Nebraska were not happy. Uh, we had a, a couple of home losses that uh, people did not expect and they weren't just losses, but they were convincing losses. And so then the, uh, the cry went out to, um, to fire Frank Solich. And there are some people to this day, you know, kind of like, uh, Babe Ruth and the, the goat story with uh, Boston. Uh, there are some people today that feel Nebraska football is jinxed or cursed uh, simply because of the way that uh, Frank Solich was let go. Frank Solich recently retired, went, uh, went from here, he almost went to Army, but he went from here to Ohio University and had a uh, very, very uh, good career coaching at uh, Ohio University. And, um, you know, I'd, I wouldn't mind at some point in the future seeing a Frank Solich day here in Lincoln and maybe, um, uh, in a sense, kind of exercising some of those demons that uh, some people are still floating around. Um, after Frank Solich, we had the uh, Bill Callahan experiment. And uh, Bill Callahan was, uh, was an NFL guy, and now he currently still is an NFL guy. Uh, he brought an NFL approach to Lincoln, which in some respects was good and in many respects was not good. He did away with the walk-on program. He um, uh, basically severed ties with uh, the history of Nebraska football 
he wanted to be his own man. He wanted to start his own legacy. He did not care about the uh, long-standing traditions that were here in Nebraska, the, the bowl streak, the, um, which went by the wayside, uh, the nine-win streak, which went by the wayside, um, and the sellout streak, which amazingly is still going in, in light of uh, some of the things that have happened these last years. Probably the, uh, the thing that uh, Bill Callahan is most famous for here in Nebraska is um, a defensive lineman by the name of Endomican Sioux. And uh, Bill Callahan brought Sue to Lincoln and Endomican uh, um, uh, has been a, a big, big uh, booster and supporter um, financially of Nebraska sports and uh, people here, people here love him. You go to the stadium and uh, they're not booing, they're suing. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a fun thing as well. Um, Bill Callahan didn't work out. Um, one of the nicest guys in the history of college football coaching, uh, Mike Riley came and, uh, Mike Riley was, uh, just, just a really, really nice guy, uh, had some good teams, but, uh, could not consistently put a winner on the field. Uh, the team was going, uh, in the wrong direction. The uh, number of high caliber players was um, dwindling. And uh, it was it was clear to many people here that uh, a change needed to be made. And uh, the change was made. And the change was what everybody uh, in Nebraska and every Nebraska fan wanted to see native son Scott Frost come back. Um, Scott Frost had been a um, a very, very successful assistant and uh, offensive coach at uh, Oregon uh, with some of the amazing, amazing uh, high-powered offenses at Oregon. He went to Central Florida and turned around a losing program uh, and uh, two years had an undefeated season. Um, it was, oh, and they their, their claim for their mythical national championship at uh, Central Florida came to Nebraska with lots of fanfare and hoopla. Everybody was hoping Nebraska would be back. Um, I still have my um, tickets, ticket stubs, rain soaked ticket stubs to what was supposed to be Scott Frost first uh, coaching victory here in Nebraska. It was a, a early season game against Akron and the game got, believe it or not, rained out. Hmm. Uh, Hours and hours and hours we waited. The lightning and the storms would not subside. They talked about playing it on Sunday morning. Couldn't work out the TV uh, issues, and the game was canceled. And uh, some people would say that uh, that was the bad omen. Um, that was uh, the mark of the Scott Frost teams. Um, the Scott Frost teams look good on paper. Uh, unfortunately they've been very inconsistent and, uh, not look good in, uh, in real life and on the field. Uh, there've been some flashes of brilliance, uh, been a lot of people transfer in a lot of people transfer out, um, this past season, uh, 2022, um, Nebraska set a record for the most one score losses, uh, in history 
uh, eight, if I remember correctly, they were all painful. So I tried to get them out of my mind. Uh, we were so, so close um, so many times and uh, just could not finish the deal. You got, you got to remember you had the whole COVID mess um, that, uh, that pretty well gutted the uh, 2020 season and uh, Nebraska led the way to get college football back. And then at the end of the season, uh, the team voted not to go to a bowl game. Um, that, that did not sit well with Nebraska's fans. And so um, Nebraska, Nebraska fans are always drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And Nebraska fans are always hopeful and always optimistic. And uh, Jay, I would be lying if I told you that uh, uh, some people um, are not uh, thinking uh, Big Ten championship, major bowl game, sleeper pick for the college football playoffs uh, for a Nebraska team that, um, um, you know, uh, did not fare well last year. That's the way the optimism is and always is with regard to Nebraska football. Not that people aren't disappointed, but the sellout streak continues and uh, people love Nebraska football. They wear their red on game day, whether they're going to the game or not. Every store in every town, big or small in Nebraska, has the game piped in on the radio on game day. Uh, some towns literally shut down when it is game time. That is the phenomena that, uh, that I grew up in and I'm happy to live in right now that is Nebraska football. Oh, your wealth of knowledge, Clint. What an amazing, amazing rundown. We're short on time, but with that said, I'd love to ask you a few fun questions. Are you game? You bet. Uh, I've known you for quite a long time. I already th always thought you would have been a great sidelines reporter. If you could have been on the sidelines reporting for one game in the history of college football, what game would it have been? Well, Jay, can I combine, can I combine on the sideline with, uh, with an upset? Yes, you can. Okay. Um, in uh, 1959, um, and I was born in 58, so this tells you the time frame here. But on Halloween Day of 1959, uh, what some people would call the biggest upset in the history of Nebraska football uh, happened here, here in Lincoln. Um, Bud Wilkinson's uh, amazing Oklahoma Sooners from the 1950s had dominated not only Nebraska, but they had dominated uh, all of college football. Um, they hadn't lost a conference game in 13 years. They had won 75 straight conference games. And with the exception of one tie, they had gone 17 years without a defeat. Nebraska coach Bill Jennings, um, very a forgettable coach at Nebraska for a lot of reasons, uh, had a 15-34-1 career coaching record. Uh, he went 1-9, and 3-7, and 4-6, and 4-6, 3-6-1. But in 1959, on Halloween Day, Nebraska pulled what some people would consider uh, the greatest 
upset, maybe even in the history of college football, certainly Nebraska football, Nebraska 25, Oklahoma 21. And uh, one of the amazing things from that game and from this era, this very forgettable era in uh, Nebraska football, is the very next year in 1960, uh, Nebraska uh, only won three games, but one of them was against Oklahoma. They upset Oklahoma two years in a row. On Nebraska's team, you may know some of these names. On Nebraska's team was the center, a gentleman by the name of Mick Tinglehoff who went on to play 17 years in the NFL. Uh, I believe all of them for the Minnesota Vikings, and he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, a defensive back by the name of Pat Fisher, who played 17 years in the NFL. I believe most of them for the Washington Redskins. And um, one of the most unsung heroes in the history of Nebraska football, defensive end by the name of Ron McDowell who played 18 years in the NFL, uh, dominating defensive end. And most of those years, uh, he played for the Buffalo Bills. So that would be the game, uh, one of my big upsets. And that would be the game that I would want to be on the sidelines for, Jay. Great answer. Most memorable play in college football history. Um, you know, for a Nebraska fan, that's easy. Uh, Thanksgiving Day, 1971. Johnny Rogers punt return uh, early in the game. Uh, some people hadn't even uh, warmed up their seats yet in Norman, Oklahoma, but uh, Johnny Rogers uh, as a famous Nebraska sportscaster, Lyle Bremser would go on to say, put him in the aisles, uh, man, woman, and child, holy Toledo. Uh, Johnny Rogers was a spellbinding player i had the opportunity to see him play in person several times uh saw him run back uh one kickoff and two punts um in person and uh to see johnny rogers was a thing of beauty but that score early in the game really put oklahoma back on their heels and uh really forced them to go away from the uh wishbone attack that had been so dominating and that uh, defensive end for Nebraska, Willie Harper uh, really put an end to with uh, stopping uh, Greg Pruitt's uh, great runs. And so Oklahoma had to resort to the pass, but without that kickoff or without that punt return, Jay, um, uh, I don't know that the outcome is the same in that uh, what I would consider personally, the game of the century. Well, leads to the, Last question I got for you. Greatest game in college football history. Oh, you know, it would be, it would be really hard pressed Jay to, uh, to go away from that uh, game of the century, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you for a loop and I'm going to, I'm going to throw the greatest game with what I consider to be the greatest upset in the history of Nebraska football. It was um, October 2nd, 1937, was the home opener for Nebraska. And at the uh, opening kickoff, the uh, sweltering heat of 82 degrees was pounding down, it was much hotter on the field. Um, the team that was coming to town to play the um, uh, vaunted Huskers 
was none other than Bernie Bierman's Minnesota Golden Gophers. They were, depending on how you count national championships, they were three-time defending national champion and going for a fourth. Um, Nebraska had gone two and 16 in the 20th century against Minnesota. Nebraska was three, four, five touchdown underdogs coming into this game. The uh, coach of Nebraska was a new guy, um, Lawrence McSeeney, Biff Jones, who, um, again, you could do a podcast just on Biff Jones. Uh, he was a major, but everybody called him Colonel. He was the uh, Army coach in 1928 when they defeated Nebraska 13-3 to and kept Nebraska out of the Rose Bowl. Uh, he had been coaching at... Uh, Oklahoma prior to World War One or to World War II, and then left to be in the military full time. And Nebraska coaxed him out of uh, semi retirement to come back. Um, Minnesota dominated the game on the field. Um, Nebraska, um, by some accounts, and and the statistics are sketchy but Nebraska only had two or three or four first downs in the entire game. Minnesota had two fumbled punts that Nebraska turned into touchdowns. Uh, Minnesota was leading early in the fourth quarter, nine to seven, when they fumbled their second punt. Nebraska could not run the ball, and so they resorted to the uh, – passing attack they uh miraculously scored a touchdown and for only the third time in the 20th century the first time since 1913 nebraska beat bernie bierman beat minnesota and an amazing statistic jay uh nebraska uh, could not get a first down minnesota had many many opportunities to come back and win the game in the fourth quarter. And in the fourth quarter, they had six, count them, six interceptions, which uh, sealed the victory. Uh, according to the official statistics, Nebraska had 18 yards rushing in the game. Minnesota had three or four times the total yards, and yet Nebraska came away the victor. October 2nd, 1937. I wouldn't have minded being on the sidelines of that game, too. Great response. Great stuff. Well, I want to thank you, Clint Poppy. You've been a phenomenal guest. You can follow him on Twitter at Clint K. Poppy. That's at C-L-I-N-T-K-P-O-P-P-E. Follow this man. Thank you for listening to the History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, sir.